1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week we're talking to human rights lawyer and award-winning author Philippe Sands about his new book, The Ratline: Love, Lies and Justice on the Trail of a Nazi Fugitive. You might remember him as the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, East West Street, which is the history of the Nuremberg Trials. But the Rat Line tells the gripping story of Otto Vector, a leading Nazi who fled Germany after the war to mysteriously vanish. Philippe has a personal connection to all this too. He's friends with Vector's son. Our deputy editor, Steve Bloomfield, talks to him about writing The Rat Line, how we move between the personal and the political, and of course, what it's like launching a book in the middle of lockdown. But before that, Steve, I should ask you, what's it like um, recording a podcast and uh, putting together a magazine in lockdown?
2: Are we getting there? I think it hasn't been uh, too bad so far. The, the first issue of lockdown went off without a hitch, and all subscribers obviously have that now, or have had that for a... Uh, a couple of weeks and recording a podcast has been not too bad either i think it helps that the uh, the sun is shining and uh, there's a there's a park not far from here where i can get my uh, government mandated uh, exercise every day uh how are you doing tom
1: just about all right yeah it's um it's strange getting used to doing all this over screens but i guess we're we're getting used to it like the rest of the world so um tell us about philly why did you want to interview him in the first place
2: so, like many people, I found East West Street fascinating. Um it's probably worth pointing out as well, there's a really great review of that book by Joshua Rosenberg that you can find um, on the Prospect website from three or four years ago, which is well worth your time. Um, and then about a year ago, Philippe made a podcast for the BBC called The Rat Line um, about this story, about his friendship with Horst Vector and the journey that he went on to try and discover what uh, Otto Vector really did and this sort of fraught relationship he had with Horst where essentially Philippe is providing evidence that Otto is you know, was a Nazi and knew what he was doing and, and Horst is trying not to believe it. And it was a really beautifully put together podcast. So when the book came into uh, the office, uh, I grabbed it and read it and thought it would uh, it would be a really interesting thing to uh, to talk to Philippe for the prospect interview about it.
1: And in the end, though, how did you feel about the book? Um,
2: I think probably because I had listened to the podcast before and already knew a bit about uh, the story, uh, I probably didn't find it as gripping as someone coming to it fresh without having uh, had that background. Um, but it had loads of extra detail that I hadn't, didn't know before. And I think there was this really interesting thing which... In fact, I think it's probably the, one of the first questions I asked Philippe, um, which gets to the heart of why he did this, which is um, he speaks to a friend of his who says it's always more important and more interesting to understand the butcher than the victim. And I think that's what he was trying to achieve in this, was really get to understand you know, who this man was who committed these crimes, how he felt about it, how his wife felt about it, and now how... You know, Decades on, his son feels about it um, and and responds to it.
1: And of course, like it's not something I've thought about for a long time. But there were there were lots of these Nazis weren't they going specifically normally to South America for quite a long time? It's a big phenomenon, wasn't it, Steve?
2: Yeah, indeed. So um, Otto Vector dies in Rome, but his goal had been to get to Argentina, where so many leading Nazis. Uh, and not-so-leading Nazis, ended up, um, I remember once being in Cape Town, South Africa, about 10, 12 years ago, and meeting someone there who said his family were originally from Poland, and I was like, oh, right, mine were originally from Poland as well, it's like, well, how, how did your family end up here? Um, and uh, and he said oh well you know they um they left poland at the end of the uh, at the end of the second world war and went to argentina mm. and then in the in the 1970s they left argentina and came to south africa um i should of course point out if it's not obvious that this man was white and we sort of looked at each other and i said yeah i think my family had a slightly different experience in poland from yours um so yeah there were uh, yeah l- lots of lots of uh Nazis fled to Argentina, and also what the other thing that was interesting in this book, without giving anything away, is how there were both, um, depending on, obviously, what type of Nazi you were, what skill set you had, um, there was also a possibility that you didn't need to flee, that certainly the Americans, and indeed the Russians, and even some Brits as well uh, in government, were actually interested in bringing certain Nazis who had who had certain skills over to their side as well after the end of the war.
1: I guess it attests to Philippe's kind of broad-mindedness and curiosity that despite his own, I think, Jewish ethnicity, isn't it, that he really is interested in the interior world, it seems, of some of these characters who've done terrible things.
2: Yeah, the relationship between him and Horst, it's... Um... I think it comes across actually better in the podcast than in the in the book, just because you can you can hear it. Yeah. You, know, you you can hear the two of them talking in are sort of at times slightly strained tones. Um and Philippe is you know, he's a lawyer and he is scrupulously fair to Horst and uh and indeed to Horst's parents, Otto and Charlotte, and sort of in telling their story honestly and um, you know, it's quite clear what Philippe believes. It's what, frankly, anyone would believe if they read the evidence. Um, but he, he's very careful at not ramming it down Horst's throat and listening to Horst as Horst gives his side of or what he feels is his side of, of the argument. And it, it makes it, you know, it makes it a far better story because it's not, it's not polemical.
1: Well it sounds like a great subject for a conversation, so let's move on and hear that now.
2: Philippe Sands, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Really good to be with Prospect. As a as a regular reader and a fan, I am absolutely delighted
2: to be having this conversation. Thank you, Phil. So thank you indeed for that. Um, before we begin, uh, let, let, let's say where we both are. I'm uh, I'm currently uh, in my house in uh, in northeast London. Uh, whereabouts are you? And, uh, I'm in my
3: house in North London, um, and it's where I spend most of my time anyway. So it's not that different. But of course, I can't meet with my mates on Hampstead Heath, and I go for walks with my wife or on my own, and uh, that is different.
2: It is indeed. We'll, we'll talk a bit later about sort of the 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 pandemic and the the global response. Because I'd be I'd be interested in your views on that. Well, just just on that, I mean, one of our one
3: of our other neighbours is uh, is a, a senior medic down at the Royal Free Hospital, which is just down the road uh, from us. And he actually features in the rat line and he's become my main source of information also on coronavirus. So we can come back to that in due course if you want.
2: We will um I want to start with a line from the end of the book, and this won't give anything away, but it's um, from a friend of yours who says it is more important to understand the butcher than the victim. Was that your view before you began this project, or was that something that you sort of that, that came to you as you were as, as it was progressing?
3: I don't think
2: the idea of understanding the butcher,
3: the perpetrator was at the forefront of my mind when I began this whole project now many years ago. But it was not something I think I fully understood. It was encapsulated by a friend, a Spanish writer, Javier Cercas, when we were together in the Vatican. Um, He said to me, he'd read various drafts, and he said, I am fascinated by this story. And I said, why you who read so much, you who write so much, he said, because it's more important to understand the butcher than the victim. And that line in a single moment actually spoken to me in the Sistine Chapel, where we were there on our own on a sort of private visit. All of a sudden it explained what I was up to, which is the beating, a beating heart of this book and of this project is to understand what motivated the Otto and Charlotte vectors of the world. And I think that was there below the surface, but that line articulated it as clearly and elegantly as any other or any thought I had had.
2: Before we get into how you came across uh, Otto Vector yourself, tell us a bit about who he was and, um, and what his role was within, uh, within uh, the Nazi regime.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, until
2: I started getting involved in
3: exploring who Otto Wächter was, he had been more or less whitewashed out of history. He was not a familiar name. Uh, He had successfully, if you like, been removed from most of the books, most of the stories. And I'm fascinated by how that happened. He was Austrian. He was a lawyer. He uh, joined the Nazi party very early in his 20s. While he was a law student at Vienna University, uh, he became actively involved in the Austrian Nazi Party in the early 30s. He was involved in the murder of the Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss in 1934. He fled. He comes back to Austria in 1938. And then he has a series of very high ranking appointments in Vienna, then in Krakow, where he is appointed governor, where he personally authorizes and establishes the famous Krakow Ghetto. And then in district Galicia, based in the city of Lemberg, Lviv, Lviv, where he is based for two and a half years and effectively senior administrator at a time that more than a million people are rounded up and exterminated, including most of the members of my grandfather's family. He then escapes in May '45 and disappears off the face of the earth.
2: And at what stage did... You become aware of who he was, and why were you why were you drawn to his story? It's an interesting
3: question. I I think I must have come across the name at some point in two thousand and ten or two thousand and eleven when I was first invited to the city of Lviv to give a lecture on the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity, and what became the book East West Street. In writing, in researching that book. I was introduced to the son of Hans Frank, who is one of the four characters in that book. And at some point in our first conversation, Nicholas Frank, who I've come to know very well, who has become a good friend, said to me, since you're interested in Lemberg, Lviv, perhaps you'd be interested in meeting the son of the governor, Otto Wächter. And the name Wächter rang a vague bell, but I'd really not focused on him. Nicholas made the introduction. We met very early, I think it was in 2012, and we've seen each other every year a couple of times since. So Vector came onto my radar screen in a real way in 2012. At that point, my interest was primarily in his son Horst um, and trying to understand. I suppose it comes back to your first question, understanding the butcher rather than the victim. I was fascinated by meeting two sons whose fathers were involved in mass murder. What was it like to live with that? How was it to live with a father who had been involved in such acts? I knew a story from the other side. I'd grown up in a household, if you like, that had been on the receiving end of such acts. And I regret that I'd never turned my mind to ask myself the question, how is it to be the child of a perpetrator? And
2: that question began to be answered through Nicholas and Horst. And both Nicholas and Horst had very different views of their fathers, didn't they? They did indeed.
3: Uh, Nicholas shocked me when I first met him, at some point in late uh, two thousand and eleven, when he uh, two thousand twelve when when he he we met the first time. First thing he said to me was, Philippe, you have to understand uh, I'm against the death penalty in all cases except in the case of my father. And the second thing he did was take out a photograph from his jacket pocket. And it was the photograph of the corpse of his father who had just been hanged at Nuremberg, which really sort of shocked me. And we talked about why he did that. Um, And then when it came to the subject of Horst and Otto Wächter, he said, you know, you're like... Horst, but he is different from me. He has positive feelings towards his father. He wants to find the good in his father, which is not what I want to do in relation to mine. And so you've got these two sons on opposite ends of the spectrum, both extremes of position, actually. I mean, Nicholas's hatred for his father is very strong. I wouldn't say Horst has a love for his father, but a very strong desire to find the good in his father. And that dichotomy, of course, was the subject of a film. That my dear friend David Evans made my Nazi legacy a BBC Storyville film, which tells the story really of the two sons and my relationship with them navigating the complexities of their very different
2: relationships to their fathers You mentioned the film um, there was also you then did a podcast series The rap line, and now you've got this book um, what is it that has made you keep going with this what what is it that has has made you think that there is there is more to say more to tell about about these stories? Well, I mean, life is strange, you know, and
3: we all know that the things that we do and don't do are not pre-planned, at least not by us, and they're accidental. It begins actually with an invitation to give a lecture, which then leads to research to a book, which then leads to an article published in a newspaper, which then leads to a film, which then leads at a moment in the film when Nicholas describes Horst as a a Nazi, a view he later retracted. words which then cause Horst to give me his family's entire archive, which then leads to a podcast and an editor saying, yeah, but this this should be a book, um, because there is so much detail that people may find interesting. Certainly what fascinated me, because I had access to this remarkable archive of material, of diaries and of letters, I think it is unique. I don't think we have got in relation to any other top Nazi couple, their personal materials throughout the entirety of their 20-year relationship, from points of weakness to points of utter power and back over the other side into disaster, isolation, uh, being on the run. And I wanted to know how it was to be a family in those times at the top table. And that's why I think it's the to the book, the relationship between the couple that fascinates me the most. And I suppose, digging even deeper, it's the relationship between Otto and his wife, Charlotta. We don't often think when we look back to periods of horror and mass atrocity what did the partners do? What did the wives do? How much did they know? How complicit were they? How engaged were they in what went on? And here I had this unique resource, assisted by the wonderful, sadly late, Lisa Jardine, who really was the person who catalyzed this, I have to say. It's one of the reasons the book is dedicated to her uh, in part. She was the one who said, there will be hidden material in all these letters and diaries, and we must find that material and uncover the story. But I was fascinated by the couple, and I'm totally fascinated by Charlotte of
2: Let's talk about of Vector then. Um, who was she? And, and, and to answer that question that you, you posed there, sort of how complicit was she? How aware was she of what was going on? And, what, and if she was aware, how much of that awareness did she, did she reveal even to herself?
3: Well, early in my relationship with Horst, he said to me, you know what, it's not my father that I love, it's my mother. He says, I hardly knew my father. I and mean, Horst was born in '39. His father died when he was about 10 years old. But his mother, he knew very well. She lived until 1985. She looked after him. He was very close to her. I think he was her favorite of six children. And he talked about her a lot. He talked about her a lot more than his father. And I, I came to understand over the years of working and getting to know Horst, that his motivation was really a love of his mother, that because his mother loved his father, the protective embrace he throws across his father is really to do with an embrace of his mother. So that made me very interested. Who is Charlotte Vechter? So she is eight years younger than uh, her husband. She's born in 1908. When she's 20 years old, she comes and spends a year in England, which I was fascinated about. She has a deep love of England. Uh, and indeed believes that the British are far more nationalistic uh, than the Germans. There is material in the diary in her letters, which is completely fascinated me. She spends much time in England in the 20s and 30s and gets to know lots of people, including Oswald Mosley. Um, and she meets Otto on a, in a railway carriage in Vienna, and they court for several years. She gets pregnant, they marry, and she's there by his side. And she is a true believer. I mean, she is anti-Semitic from the outset, despite the fact she comes from a very wealthy industrial family. This is the curiosity. I've asked myself long and hard, why would she be and so anti-Semitic at so young an age? And that's a complex question, but she was. Uh, and she fell in love with her Otto. She has an absolutely crucial role. There's a moment that she recounts in her reminiscences that stayed with me, Uh, They both return from Berlin to Vienna after several years away to stand in the Heldenplatz with Hitler. And when I say with Hitler, I mean literally one meter from Adolf Hitler as he addresses the crowd. It's a remarkable scene and she describes it very vividly. She writes sometimes quite well. And after standing with Hitler on the Heldenplatz, they descend the large marble staircase in the Hofburg behind the balcony. And I've walked down that staircase and I've stood in that place. And they get to the bottom of the staircase and he turns to her at that point as she records it. And he says to her, darling, what do I do? Shall I carry on with my work as a lawyer and make lots of money? Or shall I accept this job I've got in public service and do my bit for the new government? And she basically says, join the government. Uh, And his first job, is removing Jews from public office in Austria in Vienna, and he does it with brutal efficiency, and is very soon promoted. So from the get-go, she is you know deeply involved from that moment, but even from earlier moments, you know when she's sewing swastikas onto bags and things, and uh, she's a complete fellow traveller. What is fascinating as I go through these materials. I mean, it's 10,000 pages, so it's very time-consuming. All in German, most of it handwritten. So I had the assistance of some wonderful uh, researchers, James Everest, Lehmann Klingst, and, and, and others, extraordinary I- individuals, um, was what it emerged was you won't find many references in the material to the horrors that are going on. Now, I don't know whether that is because they were not recorded or written about or because the material has subsequently been cleansed. But if it was cleansed, it was imperfectly cleansed because there are little hints here and there. Uh, A letter from Otto in 1939, my darling, tomorrow I have to have 50 poles shot. A letter from August 1942 in the midst of the horrors. Terrible, I can't get any powder for the tennis courts and the Jews are being deported in vast numbers so there are no workers. So even in the family letters, you get hints of this. But at no point in her later reminiscences does she return to the negatives of what happened. But 30 years after the end of the war, Charlotta suddenly decides she wants to go back and uh, meet some of the old comrades. She wants to reconstruct what happened, and in particular, I think, the circumstances of her husband's death in 1949, in Rome, in the Vatican. And so, she goes and has a series of meetings with old comrades, journalists, SS officers, and others. And amazingly, she records those interviews, and she keeps them on digital tapes. And when Horst gives the lot to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, they digitize it, and he gives me a copy. So, I'm able to listen to her later reminiscences, which go beyond her written notebooks of reminiscences. And you can hear her talking about the past. You can hear her with a very famous Nazi journalist called Melita Wiedemann in the bar of the Four Seasons Hotel in the spring of 1977. You hear the toasts, the clinking of the glasses, the good times, I was a real Nazi back then, still am. It's amazing material. And of course, it's deeply private material that no one would wish to come out. It's a remarkable insight of the, the legacy, the trail of history across time right up to the present day, because, of course, and I don't want to give away too much here, uh, various members of the next generation reach out uh, as I'm engaged in these projects, 80 years after the events uh, which are described in the diaries and the letters, and it goes on.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Uh, well, let's talk about Horst then um, as, uh, as, as he's one of that, that next generation, obviously as charlotte and uh, Otto's last remaining son. Reading the material and um, and as you have also sort of listening to the tapes, it is abundantly clear what Otto was doing and yet Horst defends his father almost exclusively throughout your, your time with him. Um, what what was he like? What, what is Horst like? And how has your relationship with him evolved over the years?
3: Horst is a very gentle soul. He's a good person. He's definitely not a Nazi. He's struggling to come to terms with a family history that is dark and that no one wanted to talk about. Remember that unlike Nicholas, who is German, he grew up in an Austria that really had difficulty engaging. Famously in 1955, the treaty that grants independence to Austria uh, describes in one of its early articles, Austria as the first victim of Nazism. And Austria lived with that for the next three or four decades. And so Horst grew up in an environment where one didn't talk about these things. There's a moment very early on in our relationship where Horst is describing his birthday party in 1945, where he is six years old. It's April 45. Everyone knows the war is coming to an end. Everyone knows the war is lost. Everyone knows it's over. And as he's describing that story, it's the first of, I think, only two or three times that Horst wept in my presence. And I understood in that moment that Horst, in a sense, is a victim of that period, as my mother or grandfather were victims in very different ways, and he bears that burden. And he has wanted to engage, and the narrative that he's constructed for himself is not one that denies the horrors of what happened. Absolutely not. He is not a Nazi. He speaks out against the horrors of that period, and he recognizes that his father was deeply involved in it. His position is nuanced. His position is that his father, yes, he was involved. No, he was not a criminal. No, he was not criminally responsible for any of those acts. He tried to do good in difficult circumstances. Now, I'd say that is a generous interpretation of the facts. I mean, what I've done in the rat line is taken, if you like, two parallel histories. One is the history of, in the notebooks, the diaries, the letters, where you don't read about any of the daily activity that Otto Wächter is up to, and then the actual history of what going, what is going on, including speaking to some people who were on the receiving end of Otto Wächter's largesse. And so you can trace in parallel the two stories. And for the reader, of course, and you've said it's very obvious what Otto was up to, but it's only obvious because of the material I've juxtaposed with the diaries and the letters if you were to just read the diaries and the letters you'd get a different scenario and one of the complexities i had in writing this story was how do i tell this story do i intersperse the material or do i first tell the story that exists in the letters and diaries and then tell the other story in the end i decided to juxtapose to first in each period of time tell the story as Otto and Charlotte saw it and then give the story through the eyes of others who lived it in a different way. But I've been very conscious as I was in East West Street as I don't want to impose my interpretation of the fact. So I sort of step back slightly and leave it to the reader to interpret from themselves. And there was a second point that was very important to me. This really comes to the heart of your question. Horst has been very generous with me and I felt I owed him the duty to make sure that his narrative, his argument was set out fully and fairly in the book. And I think he gets his opportunity to say all the things he wants to say. And at no point do I say in my voice, he's wrong, this is not right, this is a wrong interpretation. I just leave it to the reader to work out for themselves what is going on.
2: Well, as you say, and again, without giving anything away, that there are sort of moments, aren't there, where his that that story that he's constructed for himself it, it crumbles a little, doesn't it? And he he glimpses he glimpses the other argument.
3: Well, there are painful moments for him and for me. I mean, you know, I'm a courtroom lawyer, and one of the golden rules you have at the English Bar is never lose your rag, never show your emotion, never lack restraint, just let the material speak for itself. But there was a moment in the summer of 2014, we traveled together, he and Nicholas Frank and I went with a film crew to Lviv, and we visited some of the killing fields. We visited a mass grave where my grandfather's family is still today, and the family of Hirsch Lauterpacht, the man who invented the legal term crimes against humanity are still today. And in that context, I showed him a document I had then recently come across, an indictment by the Polish and American authorities of the crimes of Otto Wechter, the crime of mass murder, as it was put, more than 100,000 Poles killed during his tenure in lemberg Lviv, And I showed him the document um, and he looked at it and reflected and said, "Yes, of course." Pauses. And I said, well, "What do you mean, of course?" He said, "Yeah, this is this is not a Polish document. This is a Soviet document." He said. He's always got the answer to basically explain away why this isn't what it seems. Um, and at that point, I got really irritated with him. I mean, it, perhaps because I was in Lviv. And the emotion got the better of me and I lose my rag with him and the cameras are rolling and and it's caught. And There's no escape from it for me. And at one point, David Evans says, look, if you don't want that in the film, I'll, I won't put it. But I said to him, it's your film. You've got to decide if you want. And he said, yeah, it's filmic. I want it. So my mother-in-law, when she saw that moment, said, yeah, that, that's the elder abuse moment. Um, and I don't like it, but it, it's a point where the evidence, the documentary contemporaneous evidence that Horst is looking at that has in his hand is absolutely overwhelming, and he doesn't want to see it for what it is. And that was, a one in one way, very illuminating, in another way, deeply frustrating. Uh, it's a very complex journey.
2: You, you mentioned earlier on um, the the resonance to our current times of, of, uh, your, your last book East West street and obviously then the, the rat line as well. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. So what, what, what do you, particularly <laughs> particularly where we are now in, uh, all in our remote locations, uh, and, and, and going out only for a, an hour each day. Um, what do you feel about where we are today? And, um, what these stories from the past tell us and perhaps signposts to sort of where we're heading
3: I think my concern is what you might call slippage that one thing leads to another you cross a line uh, you start in one place and then you're in another place and then another door opens and you cross another line and all of a sudden you've got yourself into a very difficult situation and that was certainly the case as I was writing East West Street. I mean, the move away from openness and walls being demolished rather than constructed and a degree of international integration, rights for individuals, an international criminal system, all the mechanisms that were put in place after 1945 were being assaulted. And they were being assaulted, ironically, principally by those who constructed that foundation of 1945, the British and the Americans, Brexit and Trump, in a sense, are joined at the hip in undoing the international settlement of 1945. And that coincided precisely with the publication of East West Street. The rat line is different in this sense. It's much more granular on a single couple. And in writing it, I was very aware that what I was interested in was a simple question How could two highly intelligent, highly educated, modern individuals get involved in mass murder. And as I was writing it, I became aware that there were a series of lines in the life of Otto Wächter and Charlotte Wächter which were crossed. He joins the Nazi party in 19 early 1920s. He gets involved in a mass demonstration against Jews uh, in Vienna. He... Uh, gets involved in illegal Nazi activity in the early 30s. He gets involved in the killing of Dolphus. He then is involved in the Anschluss. I mean, one thing leads to another. And I think that, I would say, is a single message for our times. That what starts with removing rights from refugee children crossing a border into the United States separating them from their parents, locking them up, incarcerating them in one place, which may seem entirely justifiable to certain people in a political system, then leads to the next thing. Um, And if you come right now to where we are in the midst of COVID-19 coronavirus, I mean, who could have imagined that in the spring of 2020, we could come up with a situation in which a British government would declare that it would be unlawful for individuals to leave their homes, other than for certain limited purposes, for people over 70 to leave their homes for a period of three months. And of course, the mind then starts racing. Well, okay, we're now talking about creating areas in which people who are infected by COVID-19 will get placed in particular areas. The mayor of Paris yesterday released. a rep- a letter that she'd written to the French prime minister saying, we need sort of decontamination zones, where we will put these people. I mean, is that a ghetto? Is that, I mean, what do we call such places? The hotels that have been created in South Korea or in China or in Taiwan, where you hold people, all of a sudden, it seems to be for a legitimate purpose, but actually, it's not a great leap to imagine that you then extend the purposes. In this country, where that where the rubber hit the road was on the coronavirus emergency bill, which I read in full. And my immediate instinct, of course, was, of course, we need these regulations. Of course, we need to place constraints on what people can do. You've got to place, you've got to protect the collective and the rights of the individual have got to be subject, subjugated to that uh, greater good. But the original draft of the bill, of course, was uh, for two years. And in Hungary, it's open-ended. In Turkey, it is, I'm told, open-ended. And you can see how the apparently necessary desire to regulate the activity of human beings to place massive restraints on their freedoms leads to another thing. And that's the concern that I have.
2: And that's the thing I find really interesting about about this and and where it goes is because the argument you've just made there, but it's for the greater good, you know, you see the point of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these measures, as many people might do, but then that is often, in fact, almost always the argument of, uh, of any other leader, uh, any other society that brings these measures. They're for the greater good. What you need to understand is this is a problem.
3: And it is articulated in absolute precision back in I think it's an exchange of letters in 1939 or 1940 between Otto Wächter and his father Joseph, who's a former government minister, who's been in uh, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire's military. He writes to his son and he says, look, bad news. I've got a friend who's married a Jew. They've had a child. And that Jew's child has now got caught up in the race laws. And that happens to be in Krakow, which is within your jurisdiction. Do you think you could intervene to um, uh, limit the application of these harsh race laws for this decent child of my decent friend? And Otto writes back and says, I'll have it investigated by the relevant people. They get it investigated. And he then writes another letter and he says, look, I've looked into this. And I'm sorry to say, you know, the law is the law, it's absolutely necessary for the greater good that we apply the law in its full rigor. Uh, It may lead to painful individual circumstances, but the greater good requires it. Now, the greater good, of course, there was different from the greater good today, but the articulation of the proposition that there are circumstances in which the rights of the individual are Subjected to the rights of the collective, the group, become overwhelming and tantamount, and you can see the argument being made. Now, I'm not saying that where we are now will lead to that or even could lead to that, but it is a way of seeing that we need to take very great care uh, in where we go on this. You know, I mean, I listened to Jonathan Sumption, former Supreme Court judge waxing lyrically on a BBC program on this is outrageous what's going on and the police are using drones in parks and recreational areas to police these outrageous incursions on our rights as individuals and of course he has a point but the counterpoint is those individuals out there may be infecting others Um, so it, 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 it becomes very very difficult but there are lessons in history I think and the micro the granular detail of the kinds of letters that pass between the vectors show us how easily things can all go wrong.
2: Philippe Sands um, I think we'll leave it there thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it.
3: No thank you for your excellent questions it is it's
1: complex it's very complex. That's all for us for this week. Thanks for joining us on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please do leave us a rating or a review. Rebecca Lewis our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.